We're back. This is episode probably going to be three. I'm not sure where it's going to end up in the lineup, but welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is a Pridary Podcast. So happy to be back with you. My name is Kevin Reddington. I'm an attorney here at Elizabeth Morgan and Associates. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, my experienced colleague, who's been here almost four years now. Yeah, four years. Coming up on four years, which is very strange to think about, but his name is Brock Bales. But uh, if you want to pronounce it correctly, it's actually pronounced Brunk. Brunk. It's Nordic. So uh, don't be fooled by the B-R-O-C-K. Whoa, a little wobble on the table there. Um, we're still getting everything set up, so bear with us. But this episode, we wanted to talk about dentistry as a business. Because one of the things we've been noticing recently is a lot of dentists have been coming to us and asking us to restructure their business, help them in doing acquisitions of other dental practices. And so Brock has actually got a lot of experience doing this uh, in recent years, and he's seen a lot of different angles for acquisitions and for building um, a dental kind of franchise. And we want to do a podcast about it because it's an extraordinary opportunity. In my opinion, it's a great private equity option um, because it's kind of protected by this creature of state statute that keeps a lot of private equity out. So why don't you explain that, Brock? Why is why is it kind of an ideal private equity well, uh, each Each state tends to have two layers, two hedges, essentially protecting dental practices from corporate interference. Generally, and, and it's actually pretty uniform in most states, a similar double layer of protection. So if you create a professional entity, and when you say corporate interference, you mean like big publicly traded companies coming in and scooping exactly. up these small exactly. practices. Exactly, non-dentists yeah. coming in right. and lowering the standard of care. Right. So in Texas, you have the the code under which the entity is formed, the Texas Business Organizations Code, and then you also have the Texas Dental Practices Act. Both of those working together essentially prevents a non-dentist from owning an equity stake or controlling a dental practice, which means that dentists have a unique opportunity as opposed to anyone else to buy lock, stock, and barrel the entire dental practice. Mm-hmm. And even though even though you can break out certain pieces of it, like property, et cetera, et cetera, which we'll talk about in a minute, the point is BlackRock can't come in here and scoop up all these mom-pop shops, dental shops. And that's actually good. That's ideal. And so the point we're making is that if you're a dentist and if you're entrepreneurial and if you understand how to run a good practice and if you're running a good practice, you have good IP, you have a good brand, you have a good team, you have good everything else, you might want to look at acquiring somebody else because the chances are there's probably another dentist out there that just wants to do dental work, but they're not as good as you at doing the business. And so you can come in and act like a private equity investor, but not actually have to service all of their clients. So in that sense, it's really ideal because it's carved out this really unique little space. It's the same thing with law firms, by the way. Um, if you want to own a law firm, you have to be an attorney. And that's one of the things that the states have decided to do because they don't want to allow Wall Street to just walk in on everything. That's kind of the general point about that. The other unique opportunity that presents itself if you are somewhat entrepreneurial and you think that you've figured out the back office and management aspects of a dental practice and you're looking to scale Interestingly, there are a lot of aging dentists who are looking to sell, and mm-hmm. but also are looking to sell to someone who's going to maintain the same level of care and maintain their reputation in the community, etc., and aren't looking to sell to a larger 
you know, corporation. And, the, and what, what's happening is, is the way that these bigger companies are trying to get around the rules are creating these DSO organizations. And you can read the contracts and they're pretty complicated. And it'll be interesting to see if the legislature start to get, start to clamp down on that sort of activity, mm-hmm. um, which they could do at any moment. And it'll be interesting to see if the the, the dentists as a group themselves um, could start lobbying for that sort of protection. That could close the sort of DSO loophole. But the problem even with the DSO loophole, which was what you were getting to, is you can try to break up the different aspects of a dental practice, like the real estate that it's sitting in, the back office, the front office, whatever. But the dentist can own every aspect, every aspect. Right, right. And by breaking them up, you sometimes lose some of the value and you sometimes lose the integration that provides the great service to the patient. Yeah, and it's like if you're a, if you're a dentist running a small practice, who, do you, who would you want to sell to? Some shark or some investor that's going to be very aggressive about squeezing profits out of whatever assets you have? Or would you want to sell to another dentist that actually understands how it works? And there's exactly. not really any question there. So you mentioned DSO, Dental Services Operations, right? Or Dental Dental Services Org. Dental Services yeah. Organizations, sorry. So they, they explain how they're trying to get around these rules and come in and, and acquire things. So generally what happens is is they lock the seller into an extremely robust non-competition agreement. And they try to siphon off as much of the revenue as possible mm. for non-dental related services. Mm. Um, employment placing services, whatever they can say is not providing services to a patient, but providing services to the entity itself. They siphon off as much of the revenue as possible, leave the dental practice itself as at least basically a shell. Mm-hmm. Um, another way they'll siphon off revenue is by leasing the equipment, leasing the building, etc. So they try to get the dental practice itself to basically a net zero entity with all the revenue being moved to non-dental related services mm. and equipment and building, whatever. And, and that's, is that a creature of contract? Because they can't actually have an equity stake, so it's just like a profit sharing kind Where of Where they're trying to isolate the activity that makes the dental practice protected, which is the provision of dental services. They try to isolate that and say that it's under just the control of the dentist. But if you follow the money, it gets kind of hard to make that argument when the entity is just a shell. Right. right. Unbelievable. The sharks out there. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's a pretty smart idea, but it's like the as we see these DSOs try and do this, it's like, well, why doesn't the dentist just do it? You know? So if you're if you're a competent thing. dentist yeah. and if you're you're actually able to run things and systematize the way you run things, um, then it's perfect for you to step in. So um Brock's done a lot of these deals, and one of the things, the way he kind of sees it break down every time, it kind of breaks down into a front office, a back office, and the real estate. So there's kind of three different um, big pieces involved with an acquisition. And and just to refresh, an acquisition means you're actually coming in and buying a dental practice. Maybe it's not in your state. Maybe it's in a different state. So kind of walk through the process there. So step one is get licensed in the state if it's in a different state. Um, and then talk about kind of the different breakdown of the assets. when we're seeing... Uh a dental practice who's developed a bit of a reputation and is looking to scale, it's usually within the state because as soon as you start crossing borders and dealing with a de- different 
state, there's just a lot of implications. It gets complicated. So normally yeah. we're, they're staying with inside. You'd have to hit a certain level of volume where you'd think that you could handle that added level of regulation. But assuming that um, generally what's happening is they start to look for people that are aging out, um, younger dentists who tried to go out on their own and are struggling, they took on too much debt, et cetera. Um, COVID actually presented a, a massive opportunity for acquisitions because you saw uh, dental practices um, that were significantly over leveraged, not able to make payments on their leases or their equipment leases, real property leases. Um, and then there's also an opportunity with newer dentists who are just now graduating, may not have the capital to create their own dental practice or are nervous about the leverage they'll have to yeah. take on to do that. Yeah. So there's all these different opportunities where there's people that potentially want to be acquired and you can plug them into the system that you're creating. Yeah, so an example of that, and we'll talk about the aging dentist in just a second, but with the younger dentist, you graduate dental school, you probably have a ton of debt, first of all, that you're trying to service that debt, which the interest rates on that are not going to be that good, probably 6 to 10%, somewhere in that range, depending on what you got because it's graduate loans mostly. And then you go and you got to acquire this, you got to get a practice, you got to get equipment. So a dental a dental facility is not like running an internet business where you just need a laptop and a phone. You got to have almost millions of dollars of equipment depending on the size. You got to get chairs, you got to get sanitary equipment, you got to get casting and dyes and all this stuff and it and it is a significant initial equipment investment. So that's another opportunity where if you have this young dentist that's super over leveraged with all the equipment, then and they don't want to be subject to some bank, you know, so um, there's a potential for you to come in and either refinance or take on that debt or or act as the bank yourself um, and have a better arrangement with that dentist because you understand what they're actually trying to do. And the bank doesn't understand that at all. They just understand the bottom line. And there's an opportunity to have an access to an economy of scale. Right. And then with regards to the older generation, a lot of boomers are starting to hit 65 already. So we we have this huge sort of um, bulge in the python in the population demographically of all these small businesses that are owned by boomers. And as they age, they're going to look to phase out. And by phasing out, they have two options. You can either sell the business, hopefully get a pile of cash. But then when you get the cash, what do you do with the cash? You might have to go invest in mutual funds or whatever, and there's fees, and the market goes crazy and all that. Or you could kind of monitor your business through something like seller finance and phase out and bring somebody in and keep the business going and um, be able to monitor your own retirement. Because now if you have a seller finance note, for example, then you're getting interest on that note. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, and, and some people may be interested in the cash out option. The seller right. finance option right. is basically getting an annuity for your work that right. you can live off of through retirement. Sometimes the seller maintains the real estate and that's how they're keeping an annuity to keep them through retirement. And generally with the acquisitions, there's really just two options. There's either you're buying out the stock of the original dentist practice entity mm -hmm. or you're buying the assets out of it. Almost always, it's an acquisition of the assets themselves. Almost always. And explain why that's better. It's generally better for, for a number of reasons. For the buyer, they're wanting to get a step up in basis in the assets themselves mm. rather than the stock or the partnership interest or whatever. 
And then second, the buyer doesn't want to take on the who knows how many decades of liability, latent and potentially patent liabilities in the dental practice itself. Mm -hmm. And you don't have that when you buy the assets. And sometimes those liabilities are with respect to the services provided, right? with respect to the employment, IP infringement, who knows what it is, uh, failure to have a permit, like anything that you can imagine you acquire when you acquire the actual entity via the stock. The stock. Yeah. So um, what Brock is talking about here, just to elaborate a little bit, if, you, if there's a patent liability, he's saying something underneath the surface, like if there's a harassment that happened five, 10 years ago or something like that, or, or within the statute of limitations, whatever, and you don't know about that, you take that on and a former employee comes back and sues you for that harassment, that you now own the stock of that company. And therefore, you're going to be subject to the harassment lawsuit that's going to come against you. Um, the harassment is not the best example because a lot of times that's personal, but um, but it, anything, liabilities, loans, things you didn't know, expenses you didn't know, Employment et cetera, et cetera. Tax issues, anything. Yeah. And, and when you're buying the assets out, it also makes it a little bit easier to determine which employees you're taking on. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit difficult if you're you're kind of pushing that on them you can make them deal with the terminations and whatever and right. you can just hire out the people that you want or need um so there's just a lot more control for the buyer the o the only times we're buying the entity itself would make sense as if simplicity was a goal the other problem with buying the entity is itself itself is almost always it's an s corp which means right. if you acquire it as uh, a non-qualified S-corporation shareholder, you're going to blow the S-corp election. Right. So that's another reason why you don't see it. Um, you could see it because the entity itself has such a massive amount of goodwill where you're really trying to buy the whole thing mm -hmm. and you don't really care about the liabilities. You want everything that comes with it. Right. But that's still, you can get a lot of those same advantages by pulling out the assets. Yeah, it, the goodwill could be tied up in the IP or the intellectual property, which is the brand or whatever it is. The, um, the other thing that could happen is sometimes the lease could be drafted in such a way where you're wanting to buy the entity itself to maintain all the contractual relationships. Right, right. Which sometimes is very desirable. Right, you sometimes you want, want the liabilities. Yeah, because then you have to renegotiate everything else. Exactly. Yeah, But like you just said, so um, just to add a little color there too, if it's an S-Corp, which a lot of practices are, um, if it's an S-Corp, then when, I if you blow the S-election, the phrase that Brock used, that means it's considered a sale, which means that you that's a taxable. Well, well it converts into a C-Corporation. Right which all of a sudden now you're dealing with two layers of tax, which yeah. is, is not ideal when you're trying to acquire a business inside of your hopefully tax-efficient acquisition vehicle. Right. Now all of a sudden you have a layer of tax that you were anticipating. Yeah, and the last thing you want with a new business is a big tax bill. Yeah. Because that you're already going to have to cover debt service and everything else. But um, So talk about kind of the structure. Um, well, we talked about doing the stock versus asset sale. Yeah, uh, so let's talk about like niches a little bit. There, you can you can focus in on a specific area if you're really competent at something. For example, if there if there's a team, we have some clients that are just great with their HR. They're just great with their employees. They have great bookkeepers. They have great front office people. A business is a, a dental practice is a customer service practice, um, as well as being a professional 
medical services practice. And so having a back office that's good is really beneficial. And HR problems are a nightmare uh, when you're trying to run a good business. Um, and so if you have a good team, that's a great buy because your bookkeepers and those kinds of people you can just shift into the new structure and they can be running two and their teams can be running two different practices. Or for example, um, software, if you have great software and have figured out how to run things really well and something's a, a mom pop shop, everything's still on paper, then that's a great value add because there's a lot of inefficiency you can cut out with that. Yeah, to the extent that you can share overhead across multiple offices, there's going to be some efficiencies that are growing there. Right. You can, you can increase your margins just because you're using the same people to do the same work over and over again, which is, which is the best form of acquisition vehicle. If right. you've created a structure where you have everything but the service piece to the patient ironed out beautifully, where all you have to do is add in hygienists and dentists into the structure at each individual office. You've just created a beautiful model that can scale almost infinitely, mm -hmm. assuming that you can continue to staff the back office the correct way. Um, and you're capturing the entire volume of the revenue being thrown off by the dental practice. And right. if you couple that with um, a real estate holding structure, basically your own DSO that you own, that's servicing all these practices, you've captured every single revenue stream, which- Vertically integrated to some degree. Yeah, yeah. you've completely integrated across yeah. all the different levels. And hopefully you've structured a route where liabilities are situs in the correct locations. You're able to manage everything really efficiently and you can keep plugging people in and in a, in a structure that you've set up, you can also sort of, it creates a lot of flexibility on how you incentivize the dentists that you want to potentially partner with in the future. There's so many different opportunities. If you set up a holding company with subsidiaries, et cetera, you can bring in people at all different levels in that structure, mm -hmm. partner in just the subsidiary practice partner in the hold co just an employee independent contractor options there's just so much flexibility and a lot of this can be funded the acquisition like you said can be funded with a bank you can develop a good rep um, relationship with the bank or it can be seller finance with just a note mm -hmm. you provide the protections to them to know that you'll pay them with a security agreement etc um, and you can plug in the new practice into the structure pretty efficiently. Yeah, and and uh, if you don't know, if a listener doesn't know, seller finance is just uh, an acquisition where you're, y the owner of the business becomes the seller and they, f they become the financier of the transaction. So what they do is they just get a note from the buyer and the buyer makes payments on that, usually based off of the cash flow of the business. And it's like, why is that ideal? You didn't do anything. Well, it's, well, what's ideal is you're getting interest off of it. And so you get to keep control of the business. And you can do as a term of the seller financing, you could say something like, if you don't pay me, if, or if you default, then I get the business back. And yeah. you've lost nothing, um, but you've gotten a little interest and you can just keep going with the business. So there's really not a whole lot of loss. A lot of people don't like seller finance because you're, you're, um, you don't get any cash up front. 
but you can you can kind of jostle around with it. You can have some cash, some finance, some et cetera. So a lot of times you'll see just sort of a, a hybrid transaction, certain percentage of right. cash up front, twenty percent or so, with a note. Sometimes it's a balloon note. There's so many different options and how you negotiate that. Whether or not there's a higher interest rate, but you allow for prepayment, lower interest rate, no prepayment, all that sort of stuff. There's there's just a lot. Sky's the limit on how you negotiate that. Yeah, you can structure it in any number of different ways. Um, y- yeah, and so it, just a f- one final point on that: if you, if let's say you sell your practice for five million dollars, and you're aging, you could go buy an annuity or something like that, but that's not going to be that good of an investment, um, and you could lose money on it. Or you could go and just buy real estate, but that's essentially starting another business. So the the kind of the ideal part of it is you can use the business that you've already built, which you know works, and you can continue to take the cash flow from that while phasing out of the business. That's what's ideal about it. So, um, cool, cool, cool. All right. Now, there are some sticking points, obviously, some things that people argue about. Typically, they have to do with competition and stuff like that. We'll just talk about that a little bit. Well, one of the difficulties if you're coming into a practice and we keep using the aging dental practitioner example is that individual is usually cultivated a really good reputation in his community Mm -hmm. over a long period of time. And the worst thing that could happen is if you acquired his practice and he opened one up right next door and competed with you. (laughs) So that's usually the biggest sticking point is. And sometimes you want that person to, to work with you. Right. To make the introductions, to send the letters to the patients, to continue providing services for a certain phase out period. And then even after that, there's a non-competition period to protect the investment, to to protect what was just purchased. Right. So non-competition is a big is a pretty big sticking point. The other things that we've talked about already are like, what are the terms of the sale? How much cash up front? How is it financed? Um, What? assets are actually being bought because sometimes sometimes the uh the employees can be in many ways considered assets but sometimes you only really want a few of the employees because they're high producing etc and you're already staffing a lot of it with the office that you've already established so those can be bits of you know sticking points the other ones can be just the the lease a lot of times the lease is a pretty big uh, on the actual office itself can be a pretty big point where the landlord is actually involved in the negotiation to a certain and sometimes the landlord is the dentist mm-hmm. um there's that aspect as well but those are uh, pretty much those are the the big ones yeah and firing people is never easy uh if there's inefficiencies in in a business which a lot of times there are in small businesses and a lot of times the drag on the revenue is just a bad employee or somebody that doesn't, or an old, in some some instances, an old partner in the business that might just be still taking revenue because they own, they own part of the business. So that's a double-edged sword because because um, it's not easy dealing with that on a person-to-person in the business. But that's an easy value add to get rid of inefficiencies or buy out a partner that's just taking most of the revenue from it. If you can buy that out, then all of a sudden you've freed up a ton of cash flow to deal with the liabilities and to deal with all the other stuff that you have to do in a new acquisition. And so it's both an opportunity and a potential sticking point. Yeah, the, the acquirer has the benefit in an asset sale 
to look at the things that he or she wants, pull those out. And sometimes when those things are removed from their current context, they grow in value Mm -hmm. just because they're out of the friction points. And that thing can also, once you plug it into the system that you've created, can also grow in value. So Mm -hmm. what's interesting is, is when you're appraising the value of a practice right before acquisition, and the value of it right after acquisition, there can be a difference. Just because you've added so much to it in terms of the synergies that you've created right, right. and removing it from the context of the inefficiencies that it was in. So, so theoretically, if you were a greedy fat cat, you could just turn around and sell it immediately. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> after changing two or three it, things. It is interesting how if you, if you wanted to create a model of you pull inefficient practices into an efficient system all of a sudden they're more valuable now you can sell them for more right but you can't skip the step of making it right. a better thing right. and why would you want to anyways because you now you have a great cash flowing asset which is an ideal asset it's better than anything you're going to find this is why so uh, just in summary for this episode this is why Something like a dental practice is ideal because it's private equity. It's not subject. You have all these, all the public markets have their own troubles and you have to hire people to deal with them, et cetera, et cetera. Dental practices are great because there's a little bit of a statutory fence around them, which protects you. And um, there's a huge opportunity with people phasing out. But the other thing we didn't talk about at the beginning was insurance hasn't come in and totally taken over the entire industry. So there are different cosmetic things you can do in dentistry. There are different... um, like braces, all these kinds of things. A lot of things that, that dental insurance hasn't really got involved in yet. And it's just a cash transaction between um, the service provider and the patient. And there's no middleman in there, which means there's a lot more opportunity for the actual medical service provider to make a lot more revenue out of something like that. So um, I don't know the hospital space very well, but that's effectively run by an insurance company in many ways because it's so big and so corporatized. So, um, yeah. Yeah, true. Awesome. Well, this has been the dental episode. If you are a dentist and you are interested in getting into the acquisition mode, um, we'd love to work with you. We don't, we're not necessarily even looking for clients at this point. Our firm is, is, um, got a lot of business, but nonetheless, Brock has been really involved in these processes and he's got them down really well. So, um, between Brock and myself and our whole team, um, we're able to do this process really, process really efficiently and walk you through it. And we do recommend having a good team when you do an acquisition because if you don't have good professionals behind you. It gets pretty difficult. So, and, and the other thing that I can add to that is I think something that our firm does really well is seeing the client for the whole picture. Right. So we're not just going to think about you as an M and a client. We're going to think about you in terms of your estate, the tax aspects, and the M&A aspects. Right. So there's there's a lot of there's and we could keep going into all the different facets of a of the service that we provide. But generally speaking, yeah, we're going to try to look at you as the whole. What can we do to help everything integrate well together? Yeah, exactly, and that's. It is pretty rare in this space. Like not a lot of people, if you come and you talk about acquisitions, they're just uh, a lot of firms are just going to want to do the M&A stuff. They're not going to be thinking, thinking about the estate tax consequences or something like that, which is what our firm thinks about. And so we think about this stuff comprehensively um, from, <laughs> I don't want to say cradle to grave, but <laughs> bookend to bookend in terms of 
um, what your business planning and your personal planning and estate planning is. And so that's one of the things that we offer. And that's not what we like to act as quarterbacks, so to speak. We can act kind of like a mini general counsel for you. That's kind of where we stand apart. But so anyways, if you want to get in contact with us, you can email me, um, kreddington at prideairypodcast.com. That's my podcast email. And then Brock's email. Go ahead and say your legal email. I know it, but go ahead and say it so I don't get it wrong. B bales at emalegal.com legal dot com, or you can visit us on our website there should be a link in the description below if you're watching on youtube you can go and check that out there's a link to our website um if you're looking for a simple estate plan we have a great relationship with a firm that we work with just if you're looking for a simple will simple trust um we work with the hargrove firm um and we have a relationship with them to send them um simple wills and we work with them a little bit to do that so if you're looking for that there's a link below um and you can get in contact with us or you can always just google us um it's elizabeth morgan and associates we just recently moved so pay no attention to the old address but the website is still up there so we'd love to hear from you and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode thanks so much